0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. A station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. by Hercules Invictus and Athena Victory, celebrate the mythic impulses of ancient Greece and Rome, and they invite you to celebrate with them.
2: Welcome to Voice of Olympus.
1: Greetings and welcome to Voice of Olympus. I'm your host, Hercules Invictus, and tonight we have an awesome show with awesome guests, beginning with our scholar from the edge of time, Nicholas Dyack. And tonight, he's going to be speaking about his researches in Lovecraft and the Carnivalesque. Greetings and welcome, Nicholas. How are you?
0: Uh, Good evening, Hercules. I'm doing very well in yourself.
1: I'm doing very well uh, as well. I'm very fascinated by your choice of topic and am uh, listening with uh, much anticipation. It sounds like a fascinating topic.
0: Yeah, um, <clears throat> we left off a month ago. I, I was working on two projects. One of them was the
3: mm-hmm.
0: the cyber and uh, industrial music project, and that was completed and published. And so fantastic. I, uh, Ah, thank you. It was a very, very well-received article. I was super uh, excited for it and super compensated for it, too. So I I left really uh, in high spirits after that one. Of course. So I I, uh, turned my attention to my most pressing essay, and that's Lovecraft and the Carnivalesque. And the reason Mm -hmm. I say it's pretty – I've got to get the books back to the library at the end of the month. (laughs) Yeah, it's interlibrary for you. But, you know, it's also an article, it's intended for a journal, and it's also what I'm gonna be presented on in about two months when Michelle and I are co chairing the uh Ann Radcliffe Academic Conference in Grand Rapids.
1: That sounds awesome.
0: So between now and last month, so I, I've now I've, you know, I know last time we talked, you know, I just started my research on it. So I've come a little bit more further with it. So that's what I'm hoping to uh, share with uh, you and your listeners. Awesome. So the project I'm working on is looking at the, the comic book series Vinegar Teeth put out by Dark Horse last year. And Vinegar mm-hmm. Teeth, uh, it's a parody comic. It's basically Lovecraft the color out of space turned into a buddy cop story. (laughs) And when I first, uh, it was it was so all over the map. It was, it was grotesque, but humorous. It was slapstick, but it also had this cosmic horror in it. And it was getting an essay idea because I was, I was periphery familiar with uh, Mikhail Bakhtin and uh, his concept of the carnival. So my research was, well, can I associate the two? Is there, you know, a topic here? And the answer is, well, yes. <laughs> so to start from the beginning, uh, Bakhtin was a Russian philosopher in the, you know, the first half of the 1900s. And he is a philosopher, a literary critic, and his big contribution was this notion of the carnivalesque. And it's a literary mode that basically... That to sum it up, is all the norms go out the window, and just like in a real okay. life carnival, or at least wear life carnival back in the day, you know, authority is out the window, roles are reversed, you know, bad habits are encouraged, such as like overeating, dancing, partying. It's topsy turvy. It's escape from reality. You know, you could go to the carnival, you leave your humdrum life behind. You can, you know, wear a mask. You could be whatever you want to be, um, you know, different gender, different whatever. Your inhibitions are gone. Uh, it's it, and this is all encouraged. This is all allowable underneath the carnival. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a little because you know you can you can use this as a critique for, uh, you know, other things. You know, if you want to, you know, mock authority uh you could do it through the literary mode of the carnival. If you want to make a statement about um you know social norms being uprooted, you could do it through this. Um mm-hmm. I first heard about Carnival lesson actually through Michelle's book, uh the James her James Bond book.
4: Because uh-huh. there was a
0: chapter in, uh talking about the show Archer. And uh our Archer, the, the premise of this essay was Archer Fully embraced the concept of the carnivalesque because of its vulgar swear words and its uh, sexual innuendos. And so when I would read that essay, uh, you know, that was kind of in the back of my mind for this is okay, so I know a little bit about the carnival. So now I need to learn more. So my next question was has anyone else written about the carnivalesque in Lovecraft? And the answer is yes, only one other person. Wow. And it's a His name is, uh have the book friend, Timothy Jones. And he uh, published a book about four years ago called The Gothic and the Carnivalesque in American Culture. So like any good scholar, you know, I need to see what's been done before I can, you know, launch it. Of course. And I don't know what to say about this research because the... <sighs> Big sigh. It's like, I get it, but I don't like it. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Okay. So for for, uh, sorry for Jones, his book mostly focuses on American Gothic and the carnivalists. So he divides his time in the first half of the book talking about Poe and Hawthorne, and then he moves on to Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, um, Robert Locke, and eventually uh, Ray Bradbury. Jones's premise is that the Gothic literature mode is inherently carnivalesque, which I'm okay with, but his deal is that Gothic literature, first and foremost, is to entertain. Any sort Hmm. of meaning you derive from these texts, any sort of allegory, any sort of metaphor, any sort of social uh, commentary is, it's either doesn't exist or it's second fiddle. And that, and I'll launch into this in a little bit, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. And, and I can't explain why. I mean, I can, I'll just kind of talk through it. Um, okay. I associate this concept to my Italian film studies, you know, the, the peplums, the giallos, the uh, spaghetti westerns, 'cause you know that's that's what my background is. Is I studied Italian genre film. So, right. I was am a big uh, supporter of a scholar named Michele Coven. He wrote a book called La Dolce Morte, uh, Italian Vernacular Cinema and the Giallo. And his his uh, theory he puts out there is the giallos, and by extension, a lot of other Italian film genres, the spaghetti westerns, the peplum, and so on and so forth, um, they fall under an umbrella called vernacular cinema. And vernacular cinema is the idea that this is movies, they're not art films. They're not made by auteurs. You know, they're made for common folk. They're designed to entertain first and foremost. As you can see, that's very similar concept to what Jones is putting out. But mm-hmm. for, for some other reason, with Coven's uh, statement, and I don't, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I spent years and years searching, uh, researching Italian cinema, that I know how that industry works. You know, the, the Italian film production industry churned out knockoffs, and you know they just kept the gears running to crank out as much derivative films as possible. So it makes sense to me. For for books, though it seems like that doesn't make sense to me. And I don't know why I feel like, you know, when you write a book, it's kind of a very personal thing. You know, uh, a movie is a project of, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people. A a book is just by yourself. And I feel Uh like books inherently meaning. And I I think my other kind of concern is, Coven, he doesn't make the terms mutually exclusive, meaning you can have a vernacular cinema film, film made for the people, films that, aren't supposed to be art films but he doesn't rule out that these films can't be you know have some sort of commentary some sort of a vessel of something meaningful i feel like jones is making it mutually exclusive that inherently gothic literature cosmic horror well you know was written for to be entertained and that's its only purpose and that Hmm. disrupts me the wrong way but i get what he's saying though because um you know, we read, we watch, we uh, play video games because, first and foremost, we do want to be entertained. So I yeah. get it, and I'm trying to compile that. But anyway, so for example, oh. Jones gives the uh-huh. example of uh, if you read Stephen King, he goes into the Stephen King short story, The Raft, which was made into a segmental creep show um, where the kids are on the raft, and there's a giant tar monster that's eating them. Mm hmm. Uh, and he talks about the, the short story version of it, and he says, well, one, one uh, you know, literary critic says, you know, this is a story about, you know, the, you know, youth transitioning into adulthood and the horrors of that. And another person says, no, no, this is a postmodern uh, statement because of whatever reason. And a third person said, no, it's a, a recapturing of language. And Jones basically comes out and says, or it's just an entertaining story, and it's just cool to see, you know, kids get eaten by a tar monster. And I I sympathize with that. I really do, but I feel like he is still making it mutually exclusive that these are always going to be first and foremost entertaining and not meaning-filled vessels. Well, anyway,
3: Mm. that's...
0: Yes. Um, he goes further in to, to say these, these the gothic horror, the cosmic horror, and so on and so forth. They're inherently carnivalist because of the way they're written is designed for escapism. You know, when you read Poe, when you read Love, uh, it has all these tropes in it. The, the haunted houses, the very, uh, you know, spooky corridors of cobwebs you know, grotesque murder, grave robbing. You know, these are all things that in reality they're they're horrible. You don't want to stay in a haunted house with ghosts and zombies. You don't want to, you know, see a ghoulish person up a grave. But under, you know, the carnival, that stuff now becomes appealing. It becomes entertaining. You can sit back and say, okay, I'm actually titillated by this. I'm entertained by, um, you know, what's going on. It can, because, it, again, it's escape from the real. So that's what Jones is getting at is, you know, the gothic horror, cosmic horror, is inherently carnivalesque because it uses the agents of the carnivalesque. Uh, not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a big top tent of a feast, but... The acts of grotesqueness, the acts of being topsy-turvy, the acts of role reversals, the acts of seeing shocking and grotesque and out-of-this-world stuff is found in these stories. And he goes into Lovecraft. He gives a couple of examples using Lovecraft. His big example is Reanimator. For Jones, Reanimator is like pure carnivalesque bliss. It's, it's a comedy. It's a farce. And this isn't even the movie version. This is the text. Um, you know, how, how funny is it that, you know, these folks are trying to reanimate guinea pigs in the basement without other people hearing? And, well, when you put it like that, that is kind of funny in a dark yeah. way. Um,
1: <laughs> I think so.
0: But, you know, the, the act that they're going out there grave robbing for experiments, that there's an undead boxer that eats a baby... Uh, the fact that at the end that Herbert West is ripped apart by his own, uh, you know, creations, that, you know, it's over the top, it's gory, it's absurd, and it's darkly comical. And for Jones, and I do agree with him on this, is that these are carnivalesque esque elements. Um, he also gives an example of in The Hound, and that's the one where two guys go grave robbing, and it's actually the first appearance of the Necronomicon, if I'm not mistaken, but he talks, there's a, he says, there's scenes where, you know, they're grave robbing, they're sitting in a tomb or whatever, and, you know, their lanterns are casting, you know, these spooky lights, there's, you know, sentences and sentences of how spooky these lights are, and he says, the function of that, you know, there's no meaning here, it's purely to entertain, it's purely to capture the agents of the carnivalesque, it's you know, an escape from the real. You can't really associate that to something uh, deeper. And so, uh, so that's kind of been it so far. I, I'm almost done with my work with Jones. Um, I don't. I, I I agree with what he's getting at, but I don't agree with uh, his mutual exclusivity. Now, okay. what I want to do is after reading Vinegar Teeth, is well, let me back up a bit. For Jones, he, he doesn't, he, he uses, you know, agents of the carnivalists to say that, you know, these books are, uh, are stories or whatever you call it, you know, allowing you to escape from the real. And in Lovecraft's case, it's double duty because his stories take place, you know, in, you know, in space, other realities, so it's even second removed from the real. Uh, but he doesn't really fully embrace what Bakhtin's carnivalist concept is. And I think Vinegar Teeth does. So that's what my essay, I think, is ultimately going to be, is here's Bakhtin's uh, concept of the carnivalesque. Here's where Jones takes it, which is more as a mode to read texts. And I'm going to say, Mm -hmm. you can apply Vinegar Teeth, but Vinegar Teeth, because it is so zany and grotesque and over the top, it takes it back to the original roots of Bakhtin. And so I think uh, it's going to be kind of circular, but I think that's what I'm going to go with, and it seems to be a pretty cool idea so far. I like where my my notes are taking me and uh, what I might accomplish with it. It sounds very exciting. It sounds very exciting. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm kind of rushing through it more than I'd like, though, just because, you know, I'm up against the clock on this essay. But, uh, you know... Again, this is the only person that's written about the carnivalesque in this fashion. So I feel like I might be able to carve something really niche here and uh, contribute to the dialogue. And maybe it's something I can apply to other works, you know, something like Lynn Carter and his Zotha Amog stuff or whatnot. We'll see. I I like the possibilities where this might go.
1: So do I. You've come a long way since uh, the last time we spoke about this a few weeks ago.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm excited. Uh, I think it'll be a neat essay, and then a neat... It'll even be a better presentation, because I'm going to take, you know, screen captures of segments from the comic book, which again, you know, oh, man, that comic book is out of this world, literally and figuratively. <laughs> so... Now, I,
1: you always give me things to quest for, and I have to look into that uh, as well.
0: Well... The the comic book is collected in a trade paperback form. That's like fifteen bucks off Amazon. Highly okay. recommended. It. It's fun. The book though, Jones's book, that was a chunk of change. That's like a hundred and thirty bucks. So that's why I had to go to the library and get it. Wow. <laughs> not, not you know, I'll say this. I'm so glad that my academic work so far creates books that don't break the bank for other people.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Um, Now, another interesting thing that you and Michelle introduced me to not too long ago was tiki culture. And uh, although I found that I have connections with tiki culture, um, especially way back when in the uh, 60s, 70s, and uh, 80s, Um, a lot of uh, connections that I never made before uh, you already established and uh, looking at them, I was able to, uh, to pick up a lot more on Tiki culture. Is there anything new happening on that uh, front?
0: Uh, A little bit. Uh, I have an interview I'm doing with an artist and a writer on a Tiki comic book. It's uh, awesome. hold on. The comic book is called, Tiki Surf Witches Want Blood. (laughs) And it's hilarious because it's kind of uh, miming like the 1960s exploitation films. But Mm -hmm. despite the lyric title, it's not a gory book. It's actually a comedy. Um, You know, two guys, they they, uh, come to an island populated by buxom tiki women. Eh, you know, there's a volcano that erupts, the god must be appeased, and all that fun stuff. Right? Uh, it's cute. It, it makes me think of uh, uh, if you ever saw the old film Wild Women of Wongo, it makes yes. me think of
1: that a little. Did you know so, that they so were there's... speaking Greek in that movie? That no. language? They were speaking, Greek. it's Greek, Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I did not know that I mean I've only seen a dubbed version of that I didn't even know it was a, an international film I just you know it's just people dancing in the sand and it's a bad film I mean it's a fun bad film
1: yes it uh, is uh, I, I've acquired several copies by, by getting different anthology collections of, of film and uh, a Wild Women of Wongo is always in there someplace so I'm
0: hoping I'm doing an interview, I need to resume that, but I'm doing an interview with the, the writer and the artist in the comic series, so I'm hoping to have that done by the end of the month. It's a fun comic book. Yeah, so it's called Tiki Cirque Witches Want Blood. Um, as lurid as the title is, in a true exploitation fashion, the cover is more lurid than the content. It's it's more of a... Okay. you know
1: and that's often the case with old movies, too, that the covers are more lured than the content.
0: So there's that going on. And, of course, you know, trying out new drinks. I tried a, a drink over the weekend called the, uh, oh, what was it called? It was based on uh, a character of Pulp Fiction, but it came out really good. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's called what So there's that going on. I know Michelle's got lots of news that she wants to share in a little bit on her home front. Uh, fantastic! Me, oh, oh, I know one other thing to share with you. Uh, okay. Michelle and I—we finally uh, our horror literature book done and out to the publisher.
1: Oh, fantastic! Fantastic.
0: Yeah, that that one was a couple months in the making, but we FedExed it off to McFarland, who's our publisher, last weekend. So. We got a little break from that. I mean, you know, next steps is compiling the index and going over the proof, but that should be out uh, towards the, you know, the latter half of the year. So big albatross off our neck. We're super excited to have the horror literature book done.
1: Yeah, that, that is phenomenal. Um, that's awesome. When it comes out, we have to cover it uh, on the show and get a review done on it. Um, my video uh, show is going to be starting soon also. So uh, uh-huh. I'm still trying to figure out the logistics of that, so we'll be able to do face-to-face interviews on Skype or something when that uh, uh, comes about. Do, do you have Skype?
0: We don't have Skype, but we've but I know what you're talking about. We've used uh, Google Hangouts to do uh, face-to-face uh, people before. I'll, so. have to do
1: oh, yeah. I'll have to look into that as well.
0: Okay. Yeah, we're on Mac products, and... Skype is a Microsoft product, so they don't like each other very
1: much. No, no, that happens a lot. That's unfortunate, but what can you do? So, wow, you you have a lot going on. You're you're researching a lot. You're producing a lot. You're planning a lot. So that is fantastic. Uh, Creativity, I believe, is our most divine uh, uh, power, and you're certainly exercising uh, your divine gifts.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, this, this will be a busy month to get some uh, work out the door. And then next month, they'll hopefully start on my next, uh, you know, big solo projects, whatever they might be. I've got my little cork board of uh, ideas. So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: So, so I know
0: we've only got a couple left. I wanted to ask, what's going on with you? What have you been working on?
1: Ah, here, uh, basically, there's a couple of video projects. One is going to be a YouTube show, and the other one, uh, it looks like it's going to be a local uh, cable show. So, uh, again, you never know what will or won't happen, but these things are in the works. Um, I am uh, forming a Theurgy school. That's pretty uh, big uh, at the uh, Amber Dragon. I had a bunch of classes over the past couple of years, And uh, they're being curricularized, so I'm running them again, and we're going to record them and put them out as uh, workbooks, and uh, we're working toward a school. So it'll probably take a good five, ten years to really build that up to the extent that I'd like, but you have to start somewhere, so that's already started, and uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about a lot of things.
0: Hopefully, there'll be some collaborations between all of us down the road.
1: That, that will be fantastic. Yes, those creative uh, projects, I, I have a few things floating around my head. Uh, they haven't totally settled yet. So once they click, uh, I'll be ready to move forward with them. But, yes, I'm looking. Uh, you and Michelle uh, are down for a collaborative effort of some sort this year. Uh, I prioritized that. So I have, like, uh, four creative projects that I want to devote the year to. And doing something with both of you guys is one of those four projects. Awesome. Yes, I think it's awesome, too. Um, Okay, well, thank you so very much for your time and for your news and for your company. Uh, I always enjoy speaking with you, and uh, I'm pleased that so many wonderful things are going on. I'm looking forward to uh, the release of your next book. Uh,
0: We'll keep you on the loop for it as uh, the horror literature book comes out. I'll keep you abreast of when this essay is done and uh, whatever the next project's going to be. So, uh, yes, I will definitely keep in loop and definitely share stuff with you as
1: well. Thank you so much. I'm going to play a brief uh, music break so I could refresh my coffee, uh, and then I will speak with uh, uh, Michelle when I get back in a few minutes.
0: Awesome. Have a good evening. I look forward to hearing.
1: You too. I put your regular contact information on Facebook. Is there anything else you'd like me to put uh, there as well?
0: Oh, no, I'm good. Uh, Everyone, thank you for listening. I always appreciate being
1: on. Okay. Thank you, Nicholas. Be well. Tonight, we have some awesome guests. Our next guest is a scholar from the edge of time, Michelle Brittany, who's an expert on all things mummy and all things ancient Egyptian and very many things besides. Welcome, Michelle. How are you?
4: I'm very well, Hercules. How are you this evening? I'm doing very
1: well, too. Lots of uh, changes, Uh and uh, lots of new things uh, going on. So uh, um, I, I'm very fortunate to have so many choices before me.
4: Oh, that's wonderful to hear, Hercules. Uh, I'll be anxious to see those things uh, come to fruition in the coming months. I was listening to you and Nick talk about some of the things that are coming up. So sounds all very exciting.
1: And I'm very excited for you, and Nick said that your book will be coming out later this year, that everything's been sent in, and now you're working on the index, and uh, um, that you have very many other projects besides, so I'm very much looking forward to learning about those as well.
4: Yeah, uh very excited. Uh, as Nick said, we did get our book off to the publisher um, a weekend ago, I think, and um, Yeah, we have the index to do next and, you know, making sure that we catch any editing errors and things like that, inconsistencies that we missed uh, uh, when we sent it in to the publisher. So we have a little bit of time for that, Um, so now we can focus on other projects. Um, As you know, obviously, you know, ancient Egypt and mummy studies is is now kind of my – Number one priority and my, my first love, I guess, uh, at this time, um, but in, I'm going to say, a former uh, scholar's life of about uh-huh. four years ago, um, I did, a, I uh, edited an anthology on the influence of James Bond in popular culture. Yes. And um, it's kind of interesting how that that book has continued to kind of give back in different and exciting ways. Um, I think it was like two years ago. Um, I was contacted by MI six confidential, which is the official magazine for the James Bond franchise. Um, and asked to uh, write an article about Bond women in the 21st century.
5: Mm-hmm. And,
4: uh, that was, uh, you know, quite fun to do, um, and it was nice to make a more personal connection with the franchise beyond, you know, what I did with the book and, you know, being a consumer of the film. Um, and in, I guess it was about, little well, right about a month ago, I got contacted um, about the potential of being interviewed for a uh, Bond documentary that is being made. Wow. And um, so I, I yeah. So it is um, a local Chapman University project, um, but it sounds like it has some potential to go beyond that um, after it's been um, premiered at the university. Um, but that uh, I got to do the interview last Thursday evening, and it was. I have to say it was. It's kind of fun, you know. It's mm-hmm. been a while since I kind of like refocused on that uh, franchise so it was really nice to interview um, with a a wonderful young talented woman um, and just discuss the franchise, the characters uh, Bond women obviously but also uh, the various actors that have played and inhabited the James Bond mantle and uh, so it's really exciting. I'm very anxious uh, to see the finished product. I I think it's premiering like late April. Um, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a, one of the projects that I've been working on and is now kind of like done. Uh, so uh, I, I'm working on some other things. I'm kind of working with Nick on developing some uh, book, uh, book covers and also doing the design work for potential uh, book that he has in his mind. Wow. And uh yeah, and then um I'm also the member and I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but I joined the group, it's uh the S S W F T. It's the sword and sword and sorcery weird, weird fiction terminus. It's a ah. a quarterly <laughs> Yeah. It's a quarterly zine, and I submitted at the let's see, the beginning of March, my first zine issue, um, in which mm-hmm. I uh, I focused on mummies uh, in comics from the 40s and the 50s um, wow, because so there fun. was a yeah, um, and in fact, you might be interested in this Hercules uh, IDW. Uh, released a mummies and pre-code comics uh, oh, wow. last December, and I think it might be one that you you would enjoy reading. It's 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 a lot of fun, and I, I'm trying to remember how many comics are in there. I think probably like around thirty, maybe a little bit less or a little bit more, uh-huh. and they range from about. They range from about the late 40s and into the early 50s. So the interesting thing uh, with the, uh, the comic book code is that the mummy stories kind of skirted that code. And so even though the code went into effect, I think like in maybe 51 or 52, maybe, uh, mummy comics continued to be made that were kind of outside of that code. Um, because they just weren't really quite on the radar, Um, like Uh the superhero comics and things like that. So we have uh, some kind of interesting stories that are definitely the pre-code and then in those early years of the the code years. So um, I wrote about that, um, but I think that you would be definitely interested in that book. It's an IDW uh, book that
1: came out in December. I will definitely look into it. Uh, today, in a $5 bin, I found uh, The Mummy with Tom Cruise, which was going to be <laughs> the first in a series of movies set in a uh, uh, world of darkness by Universal Studios, which, alas, uh, after uh, The Mummy and uh, Dracula, um, which was uh, the first attempt to, to do this, uh, kind of uh, fizzled out. Uh, And although it wasn't my favorite uh, mummy movie, I I saw it uh, through the libraries when it first came out, for five bucks, it deserves a place in my collection, so I'll watch it again uh, this week at some point.
4: (laughs) Yeah, so that's a great segue, because, you know, we do, for our, you know, for our studies and for what we're interested in having a better understanding, uh, one of -hmm. the books, or one of one of the films that I have on my shelf is Gods of, Gods of Egypt. Yes. And yes. So, so I did a revisit of Gods of Egypt and um, kind of piggybacking on Nick who started his presentation on uh, Vinegar Teeth, which is kind of a, a, a weird, twisted buddy story. Um, I thought I would continue on that theme, although it's a little more loosely based. Um Gods of Egypt also has a little bit of a a buddy story to it as well. Um, It was directed by Alex uh, Proyas, and it came out in 2016. Uh, To give a little bit of perspective, Proyas uh, also directed The Crow from
3: 1994,
4: Dark City in in 1998, iRobot in 2004, and a movie called Knowing in 2009. And I've seen all but the the last one, Knowing. I, I haven't seen that one.
1: I haven't um, seen the last one. I saw the first two.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, uh, he was actually born in Egypt to Greek parents, um, but uh, he and his family moved to Australia when he was three. And um, I think that that has a little bit of bearing on the fact that um, he does use a lot of Australian uh, actors in his films. Um, and uh, sometimes, once in a while, he does do repeat uh, stars. So like uh, Rufus Dwell, who was uh, the main character in Dark City, uh, returned in uh, Gods of Egypt. So for all those that decided to skip this movie based on the trailer, which I'm sure there's uh-huh. quite a few... <laughs> I thought I'd do I thought I'd do a plot summary of the film. So, um, Gods of Egypt is set in a flat world, flat world of ancient Egypt, and it opens <laughs> in Cairo. Um, and the gods who uh, are shown taller and can transform into divine into their divine ah, into their divine <laughs> divine form. I, boy I'm having trouble tonight with that. Um they <laughs> they they live among the humans. And uh-huh. so there there's definitely a, an us versus them mentality mm-hmm. uh between the gods and the humans in the in the opening uh opening scenes of the film. And uh there is a young thief that we are introduced to his name is Beck and uh his Uh, young lady that he loves is uh, Zaya and they attend a coronation of Horus in which uh, he is going to uh, ascend to the throne um, that his father Osiris is vacating Uh, during the ceremony uh, Seth who is Osiris' brother and Horus' uncle he arrives with his soldiers and uh, he definitely has chaos on his mind he, is, he, is, uh, he arrives, and while Horus is, you know, happy to have him there, um, he has other plans. He uh, kills Osiris and takes his uh, heart, which is his divine gift, and then uh, beats up Horus pretty badly and takes his divine gift, which is, uh, which is his eye. And uh-huh. uh, after, after this act, Egypt comes under Seth's rule. So we, uh, a year passes, and we find that Beck is uh, working uh, to build the pyramid, while his uh, lady love is working in, in the office of the architect, the master architect. Beck steals one of the eyes of Horace, and in the process of escaping, his, uh, his uh, lady is killed. So uh, he only knows to go to Horace, who at this time has been hiding uh, because he feels broken and has nothing to give. And so Beck and Horace become reluctant buddies as they seek to take Egypt back uh, from set. And uh, during the intervening uh, hour or so, Horace and Beck uh, seek out Roth, who is Horace's grandfather, father, mm-hmm who is the god of uh, knowledge, and Hathor, who is the uh, goddess of love and also known as the myth of the West. Uh, and there, he seeks them out for assistance, and in, and in each way they give, they, they help further the plot and, and allow Horace and Beck to progress in their, in their journeys. And uh, so along the way, they run into various gods and goddesses who are aligned with Set. And uh, I found that the hero's journey is kind of split between Horus and Beck, but it's obvious that Horus is the one that has more to learn than Beck. And so uh, it seems like, at least superficially, Horus uh, discovers how much he actually does care for the humans, and he wants to uh, lead a more peaceful existence with the humans. Uh, at the end, uh, he uh, does defeat uh, Set and uh, kills him in the end and returns all to be right in the world again. And, um, you know, so this is a fantasy film. Uh, it, mm-hmm. Although it is set in ancient Egypt, uh, Proyas has said that this is definitely, you know, it's not ancient Egypt. It's not as we would think ancient Egypt. It's, it's his imagination of an ancient Egypt. Um, and that's going to have, I think it has a little bearing on, on on some direction that he goes with this. So the movie budget was at $140 million uh, when it was released. And, of course, it, it bombed pretty big in the U.S. But with the global release, the movie made back the budget money but not the marketing. So it was still mm-hmm. probably about another
1: yeah, in the whole um, it grows on sure the, the movie the first time I saw it uh, like the mummy the mummy with Tom Cruise may grow on me in time too um, but uh, the first time I saw Gods of Egypt it was kind of like what, what were they trying to, to do um, but I've seen it subsequently several times and the last time I saw it it was fun um, so it's interesting that uh, um, the person who created it made a distinction between uh, Ancient Egypt and his imaginal uh, um, world based on Ancient Egypt. That, that is uh, quite an uh, uh, interesting thing for him to say.
4: Yeah, I thought it was, too, particularly since, you know, we need to address the elephant in the room, and that is the fact that uh, there was criticism with regards to the movie uh, and definitely found it like you know there were CGI issues, there were definite plot holes. Um, but I'll come back to that that plot hole in a second that that he had within his narrative. And you know honestly, some of the the uh, actors were just kind of phoning fun- in their performance, and that it just wasn't that great. Um, but the biggest problem is probably the fact that um, you know both he and the uh, distributors, Lionsgate, were accused of whitewashing um, because, you know, here's a movie that's set in ancient Egypt, and yet you had, I think, two uh, non-white individuals, you know. Mm. Um, So, you know, the, the criticism is that you're setting it in ancient Egypt. And even if he's saying, well, it's not, truly ancient Egypt, his fantasy version, there Uh still is an there. There's an expectation to have more diversity. And, um, you know, he did apologize as did Lionsgate um, that they didn't have more diversity and that they missed the boat on that. Um, But I think that um, while he missed the boat on that, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about some of the gods and kind of, you know, just kind of bounce that off. Um, And that is the fact that, you know, we, this is kind of a, for all the bad that that this movie is, it also has some really interesting things, and that is, you know, we get to see the gods. We get to see some, you know, interpretations of the gods. You know, we get to see Horace, who's played by uh, Australian actor Byron Brown, um, who's, who starts at the beginning of the film. He has his staff. He's going to, you know, pass it to, you know, his son, Horace. We see, um, Isis there. Um, and then we also see other gods come and present gifts to Horace, including Foss, who is played by, uh, Chadwick Bosman. Uh, Foss mm-hmm. is the, god of wisdom. Uh, we get to meet, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, we get to meet Hathor, um, and several other gods and goddesses come through. Um, and uh, we we get kind of bits and pieces of truth from the mythology. Um, and I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but I just wanted to touch on a couple of things. So, um, Prius has been, uh, has commented on the fact how much he has been influenced by Frank Herbert's Dune, and so uh, the the chaos creature, the worm-looking creature with all the teeth in its mouth, kind of looks like a worm from Tremors, or also the the worms from from Dune. And um, in looking that up, I found that that uh, chaos is represents the uh, Egyptian god uh, Ap or the Greek word uh, term is Did apophis. Did I pronounce
1: that yeah.
4: right, Herndon? Yeah. yeah, it's apophis.
1: It's how it's pronounced in, in uh, the, the Anglicized version of the Greek is apophis.
4: Wonderful, yes. Yeah. So apophis appears as a serpent, and he is supposedly born from Ra's umbilical cord, and uh, in the mythology, Rod does fight him each night as he travels across the sky. Um, so I thought that was interesting um, that, you know, there, even though the worm looks like the worm from Dune, there there is actually, you know, some truth of the mythology relating to ancient Egypt. Um, let's see. We have Set, who is uh, also, you know, the god of, I think he was the god of war. And, you know, he is also, you know, the one that that disrupts uh, life. And through the movie, we find that, you know, he fills the various divine gifts that different gods and goddesses have been endowed with. Um, And I thought, interesting, and I was kind of curious your your thoughts on this too is that Seth goes to talk to Ra and find out why was it that he wasn't given the opportunity to procreate um, what was the big plan for Seth and I thought it was interesting that Ra's answer was that I wanted you to be able to step into my shoes and yeah. it's interesting because that says, well, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> you know, I, I, want, I want to be back in a kingdom where, you know, I, I have supreme dominion and, you know, I can, you know, run things as I want to, not be up here, you know, uh, shooting the big gun, you know, at chaos every night. So mm-hmm. I thought that was of an interesting thing and I, I didn't have a chance to do too much more
1: research um, well, well on you, you did awesome you did awesome you filled up uh, the half hour with uh, <laughs> with uh, tons of information and insight so uh, you did great oh well thank and, you and we've talked about so this I'm, movie before I'm sure there's room for it to be continued with it
4: oh I'm sure So I just want to finish real quick because I know we're running out of time. Is that I thought right towards the beginning, you know, Horace has to go through the journey of learning to appreciate humans and and even though they, I think humans actually at the beginning show that they really like him and stuff. He doesn't really appreciate them. And um, there's there is a statement said and I think it's by the older version of Beck in a voiceover. He says, "Every god's life is a journey." And I just, I just want to kind of leave with
1: that. Um, it's such that, a great awesome. line. <laughs> that is awesome. Yes, it's it's like the the hero's journey is a journey of becoming, and uh, the the heroes that we identify with are uh, something that's already in us that we're not quite yet. So uh, uh, th- that hero becomes a, the symbol of our becoming, and that's a great way to look at the gods. Thank you.
4: Oh, you're very welcome. And and I, you know, even though the, the movie has a lot of problems, I think that it was, you know, it's a fun film. And I think that there's, you know, some different things that you can take from it. Um, I'd love to do a study uh, down the road of, of it a little more in depth. Um, I will just say uh, one of the plot holes, you know, there's there were a lot of plot holes. And one of the things that I was not aware of until I was doing some research for this is that Prius actually wanted to do, you know multiple movies in this universe and so he was planning to fill these different plot holes in subsequent films so i we're not going to have another film obviously but it would have been interesting to kind of see what he would have done with it
1: and sometimes those, uh, those artistic projects find uh, a place in graphic novels, uh, so you, you never know. They might pop up at a later point in some other form, so uh, uh, that's something we could always hope for.
4: Yeah, or fan art or fan fiction.
1: That, that's very true. Michelle, thank you so very much. Uh, You and Nick are awesome. And uh, I'm looking forward to our next uh, conversation, which will be very uh, soon, uh, because I think next week is our Star Trek show. So uh, I'll be talking to you very soon. Thank you for sharing all the wonderful things that uh, you've done, are doing, and plan on doing in the future. And thanks uh, for your uh, in-depth review and insights on that movie.
4: Oh, you're so welcome, Hercules. And as always, thank you so much for the time to chat with you and um, to talk about different ancient Egyptian, you know, uh, pop culture, you know, uh, stories out there that we can di- dive into and, and dissect a bit. So thank you so much, Hercules, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you next week.
1: My pleasure, and me too. Take care, Michelle. Um, we're going to listen to. We're going to listen to King of Dreams by Branker Dorian, and then we'll be back with Ryan Foley. of Olympus. That was Bran Cerdorian's King of Dreams, a song I play a lot. Our next guest is no stranger to the voice of Olympus and other podcast. I welcome the legendary Ryan Foley, graphic novelist, author, and bodybuilder. Greetings. How are you, Ryan?
5: I'm doing fantastic. I'm glad to be back on the show with you tonight.
1: And I'm glad you're here as well, and I'm looking forward to tonight's uh, topic, um, I was thinking about like what we can explore, and then it uh, I remember that you had worked on he man uh, and yes, I absolutely. thought about muscles and the heroic, and you also did hercules and uh one of the archetypal uh Uh, Hero templates is the muscular hero, and there, of course, is Hercules, uh, Conan, uh, He-Man, almost all the barbarians, and now uh, that uh, template is is expanding to uh, encompass more and more superheroes and action heroes. Uh, So um, as a storyteller uh, who is also living a heroic life and uh, works out, what do you think the muscles uh, symbolize? Why do you think they're there? Why are they so appealing?
5: Well, okay, so whenever you're dealing with, uh, particularly with uh, comic books, uh, you're Uh going to find uh, that the the majority of your heroes are definitely going to be the the larger, the more athletic, uh, and the muscular form. Uh, And then that can also be translated over not just only to the males, but to the females as well. And I know that there has been some criticism in the past uh, regarding – if we take, for instance, uh, uh, there was a, a picture that got floated around uh, on the Internet that I, I thought was uh, very telling uh, about how uh, someone was comparing a picture of a Barbie doll and how the uh-huh. Barbie doll was often considered to be a, a, a source of criticism because uh, it, they felt that it was uh, it, it depicting too much – Of an unfair standard of beauty for the for little girls out there. So it's oh because you know Barbie was so thin, uh, and and that wasn't it was actually wasn't so much uh, for the physical aesthetic. It was that her clothes would look normal whenever uh, whenever she would wear them. But uh, so that was the the big criticism. But then you'd see that picture juxtaposed side by side with a picture of He-Man. And uh, so, it's, and so, this is the this is what we had to, to think about of as, as men growing or growing up. So the uh-huh. yeah, with the the comic book superheroes and with the barbarians, uh, that they, they are going for that what they would consider to be that perfect male specimen. And and I think that I mean that dates all the way back to even thinking about you know the pictures of of uh, of Michelangelo's David, you know, it's, uh, who again yeah. was uh, a uh, a big muscular guy, uh, maybe a, a slightly different style of muscle than, uh, than what we're seeing now. But then we're also seeing a, a growth and, and an improvement uh, in, uh, I dare say, I mean, just human evolution. Uh, you know, if you go back and, and you do some research as far as uh, the, the size, the average height, and the average weight of an American soldier, Dating uh-huh. back to, say, World War I and then World War II, Vietnam, Desert Storm. Uh, we are we're getting bigger as a people. Not necessarily fatter, but, I mean, just uh, the height is getting taller. Uh, we are becoming a, a, you know, just a, a bigger race of people. And I think that's because of the, the science of it now. People understand the importance of nutrition uh, and, and then the different types of nutrition that can go into it. Now, this isn't a, a tremendously hidden secret because, uh, obviously, the, the bodybuilders of the past, uh, they understood the, the proper mechanics of what you had to you know, how to eat so to maintain the size that you, uh, that you have. But I think it's only been here fairly recently. I mean, you can go back to, uh, so let's say, uh, around the early 1980s. Uh, I believe uh-huh. the original director. I'm just I'm I'm spitballing here, but I believe it was John Milius was the director of the original Conan the Barbarian. Yes, he was. And yes. okay, and and so Milius was talking about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger about how thank God we had Arnold because if we didn't have a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger, we would have had to build one in in order mm-hmm. to to have the character of Conan be the way that he was portrayed. Uh, In in the Frank Fazetta paintings and the the comic books and things like that. Yeah, so it's that big, strong, almost idyllic male form. Uh, And and so uh, I think that's kind of the template. You don't see a large uh, variety of of out-of-shape heroes. It's just one of those things. Now, is it necessarily an impossible standard uh, for us to achieve? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I, I think it's something to aspire to. And so, whenever you have those characters, uh, and not to uh, because if you look at a variety of uh, the Wonder Womans, uh, you know the, the, the Spider Womans and and Power Girl uh, in in uh, in comics, uh, yeah, I think it's easy to dismiss them as just uh, a, well, let's just let's call them oversized uh, breasts. And a, and a narrow waist and, and big hips. Uh, so, but at the same time, you've got, uh but at the same time, if someone comes along and says, Oh, well, that's not a realistic portrayal of, of the average female form. Well, Wolverine isn't either. Cause no guy has, you know, the seven foot shoulders down to the four inch jockey shorts and, and is, you know, with a uh, 4% body fat. I mean, the average guy doesn't experience that either, but I think right. because it is that, that heroic ideal, that we're attempting to strive for, uh, we, it's why we don't see a lot of out-of-shape superheroes.
1: That is very interesting. Um, uh, speaking about the the body types, uh, in have you seen the uh, recent issues of the Avengers?
5: No, I have not.
1: The uh, Thor and the She-Hulk seem to be having a relationship, and uh, She-Hulk is... Uh, before they drew her uh, utilizing more um, normal I guess standards of uh, female proportion, now she looks like a, a bodybuilder, a woman bodybuilder with huge uh, muscles. so it's, it's very interesting um, that they uh, that they made that choice and that they uh, um, are, are displaying that uh, relationship. Uh, do you think? Maybe our perception is shifting a little bit and we're allowing uh, more for muscular females?
5: Well, and now, this is just me personally. Everyone has okay. a, a different uh, idea of what is aesthetically pleasing, uh, but I do feel that strong is the new sexy. And okay. in the times that, that I read the She-Hulk comic. Uh, one of the things that they always you know, put very you know, front forward is that Jennifer Walters is a lawyer. So right. first and foremost, uh, I mean, so she's, she's a brilliant woman. Uh, for your readers who aren't uh, tremendously well-versed in the character, uh, she, I, I believe she's the cousin of Bruce Banner Bruce and Banner, received yes. her powers because she was in uh, an accident and she needed a blood transfusion in order to survive. Uh, since the, the cousin was right there. Uh, they, they infused her with the blood of the Hulk and or uh, Bruce Banner. Uh, but, uh, but then as a result, she gained the, the powers of, of She-Hulk. So yeah, so she transforms uh, into this fairly large... Uh, I mean, yeah, she's she's not a small woman, you know, whatever you compare to a lot of the other, uh, the other female heroes that are out there. But I do think Strong is sexy. I, I do think there is something to say where... But you've got that instilled in a woman who is brilliant first uh, mm-hmm. I th- and and is a lawyer first and foremost but then who comes along and is is also uh, a strong female presence uh, not I mean so she's strong not only in the physical sense but also in that in that emotional sense you know so she's just she's a, a good strong hero so her you uh, uh, partnering with Thor, yeah, I'd be interested in reading that. And I think with the, with the Marvel Universe, one of the things that I've found that uh, kind of odd about Marvel, and this is not a dig in them but by any sense of the, of the imagination, but it seems like they haven't broken out with a large variety of, of fairly new characters. It seems like the, you know they haven't gone through and expanded the universe quite as much as, uh, as what we've seen in, in both the, the 60s and the 70s and even in the 80s. So I think whenever right. you have something like that where you have these tried and true characters, uh, a lot of times it's like they say there's no new interesting stories in Hollywood. Uh, they're not coming up with any new ideas. So instead now it's more about the actors. So we're going to have uh, a hero that we all like and we have a villain that we all like, a, a different actor okay, I want to see those two people together. I want to see what their chemistry is like. So I think in a situation with Marvel where you have an opportunity here, okay, everyone knows the character of She-Hulk, everyone knows the character of Thor, and they've become extremely popular, uh, Thor especially with the, the, the movies that have been just so fantastic right. in the way that they've developed that character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That popularity has to translate over into the comics. And so I think whenever they come along, I'm sure it's, it's not too different than whenever you've got a large ensemble cast in, in, um, in, a, in a comedy or, you know, a sitcom that we're seeing on TV. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of the television show Parks and Rec, uh, Parks and Recreation, and uh, the, the characters that they initially had, they didn't, when, in, when the first season came around, they had no idea the showrunners down the road that they were going to make Andy and April a couple, but it wasn't until the, the chemistry between those two actors, and they were like, yeah, okay, we, something like this could work. And so as a result, they create Andy and April, which I think is one of the, the greatest romances in, uh, in, in modern uh, television. So I think to go through and take a strong character like Thor and then go through and partner him with a, uh, someone that can almost match him strength for strength that that's an interesting concept, and so yes. I think maybe the, the, the guys at and at, at, at the guys and girls at uh, at Marvel were probably just kicking around ideas and said, well, hey, what if we did this? And so I think pairing those two together and to have the the interesting diversity amongst the characters, as long as that has an interesting uh, interaction with their personalities, but then they're also uh, they don't need to be rescued. You know, it's uh, one of the things that I really like about the, the modern incarnation of, of females that are, that are coming into, the, into the, the, the lexicon now. They're strong. They're independent. The, the last thing that I want to read about is another uh, damsel in distress that needs to be rescued. Uh, to me, I'm more interested in reading about a, a strong female character, and I think we're starting to see an emergence of that because of the shift in the culture And so – and most of those women, they're going to be strong, physically capable individuals. Now, it's just – I mean, it's simple biology uh, that that the males of the species tend to be bigger and stronger. But that doesn't mean that the women can't hold their own. So that's why I go back to my theory that strong really is the new sexy. And this is not just – this is not just seen in comic books or in in fantasy literature. Uh, We're seeing that across the board. I mean, we're seeing – uh, you know, female athletes that are treated the same as, you know, as their male counterparts, uh, even the WWE with their wrestling, they've shifted away from that diva swimsuit wearing mentality to where now they it's, it's the women's division. It's, it's, they're not divas anymore. They're, they're side by side, they're superstars the same as the male competitors and they're there to compete. So we're seeing that shift in dynamic where these are women that our, our young girls can look up and aspire to. And those are the types of characters that I hope that my daughter looks up and aspires to. Um, my daughter and I just came from this weekend from, from seeing Captain Marvel. I was and she going it. ask Yeah, she, uh, I loved it. I, I thought it was a great movie. Uh, my daughter loved it as well. And, you know, you think about all the different heroes that that you and I have had growing up, that we've had our Conan's, we've had, you know, a a number of the the roles portrayed by uh, Schwarzenegger and and Stallone Mm -hmm. and, and all the great action, you know, heroes. And then we go through even with the Marvel Universe, I mean, with Captain America and Thor and Iron Man. So now we've had all these heroes, but for her now, she's getting these characters that uh, in Game of Thrones, you know, you have Daenerys Targaryen and you have uh, uh, Imperator Furiosa from uh, Mad Max from Fury Road. I mean, so oh. they have all of these wonderful characters now that I think the line is almost starting to blur. where And, and this is what I'm, I'm hoping is that they're heroes first and then their gender comes second. And and to me, uh-huh. that's how you make that's how you make an interesting character. I mean, yeah, yes. Captain Marvel. She was, you know, she's a powerful hero that happens to just also be a female. It's, she's not a female hero; she's a hero that's female. And and I think that's really cool. To me, that's the definition of strength.
1: And I like how they showed that she was strong before. Uh, she absorbed uh, the energy of the Tesseract and got her uh, superpowers. Uh, she was strong as a, as a human. And that strength uh, as well as her humanity served her uh, in the end.
5: Exactly. And I, and I think that's something uh, I loved that, that, that triple image that they you know, they gave us over and over again of her being down and then standing back right. up. I, I, yeah. I think that, and that. uh, Going back to okay, so here we I can equate that now. Uh, if you saw, uh, I, I'm sure you probably did, uh, but the Scorpion King, with uh, yes. which featured The Rock in, in his first major uh, major film role, there's a fantastic scene after they've gone through and the um, and and the the sandstorm has come through and it's it's covered him up in the sand, and and the music comes along and it plays and then it's him rising up out of that. Yeah. Out of yes, that sandstorm, after he survived, it's such it's it's such an iconic image, something like that. And I think that that plays in to our it, it, somewhere deep down in our psyche. Uh, I always thought it was fascinating how uh, I never understood how the the tabloid industry stayed in business. You know those those rags that you see uh, there at the supermarket checkout line. Uh, and, and they always have, you know, not necessarily the, like the crazy Loch Ness Monster, Elvis is still alive thing. Uh, but when they go through and they're, they're pointing out, oh, these celebrities have, have either gained this much weight or have lost this much weight. And I never understood why those, how those stayed in business. Why did anyone care about these celebrities? And I think at the end of the day, people, they, they love to see their heroes fall. It's, it's this weird flaw that we have yes, in, our, yes. in our psyche. Yeah, you want to see those people up on their high horse. Oh, the rich, wealthy people, we'd like to see them torn down. But at the same time, I think they also like to see people rise and, yes. and to, to fall and then get back up. Uh, yeah, I was uh, just watching the movie Creed II. Uh It just came out on DVD. I missed it in the theaters, and, but it was one that I really wanted to see. And again, it's, it's going back to that Rocky mentality. In, in, in the Creed movies, the, it's almost poetry in the way that they not, uh, they don't mimic, but it's just you can feel the same story beats that are in there. And so it's, it's familiar, but yet portrayed in a different way. And to see the character go through and, and, and suffer his defeat, but then rise back up again. I think there's something inherently about that, Uh, that we want to see. And for, for us as, as men, uh, that's probably best exemplified either in battle or in sports. And so Mm -hmm. I think, and that's where you're going to start to get into those athletes. You're going to see those guys who are in their prime. And, uh, Michael B. Jordan does a fantastic job in that movie, but not just, uh, I mean, he does great in the acting as he always does. He's, he's too charming for his own good. Uh, but then, but he also—I never doubted for one second that he wasn't a boxer. I mean, I know he's an actor playing a role, but he was so convincing in that role because of the, the physical power and, and the skill that he had to, to display in, in you know doing all those training montages. I mean, I know a lot of it's you know Hollywood magic, but at the same time, he's also doing a heck of a lot of work in order to portray that that physical, that ultimate physical male. And so, yeah, I I do think that that's something that that is important to aspire to, but then I have to constantly keep reminding myself, okay, this is their job. You know uh, they, they're training with probably the best professional trainers in the world with a professional dietitian. And that's all they do. Whereas I'm sitting Uh behind the desk eight hours a day, you know, (laughs) know, uh, working at my nine to five job. So I think it's important. So I think it's good to have those aspirations and say, man, I I really like this guy's physique. That's something that I'd like to aspire to. But yet also at the same time kind of, you know, keeping those those expectations realistic. So because if you, because if I only compared myself to John Cena, uh, if I only compared myself to Terry Crews or uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I I would feel like a failure and then I would want to give up. And so right. I think it's good to have those people that you, that you elevate and you put up there and you say, you know, yeah, I, I think those people are really cool. And it, it is that, that prominent physical strength. I think that's just something that deep down in our psyche we are just – we're hardwired to, to admire. And, but then I think you have to kind of temper that too because um, – but again, I'm also of the opinion that all women are beautiful and they're all in their, in their own different way. And it seems to me like there's a lot of women who go through and compare themselves almost unnecessarily to someone, to, to, an, to a truly unrealistic standard of beauty. that uh, Those Instagram models where everything's filtered in Photoshop and things like that, and so they're wondering, oh, how come I don't look like that? Well, I mean, that's also their highlight reel. So, uh, so it's that fine line that you got to walk where it's like you want to admire this woman. For a, a, a tremendous physique and, and the work that she's done, but at the same time you don't want to objectify them, and and so uh, I can see where that balancing act you have to be kind of careful with, uh, so that way you say hey you know yes yeah, she's a beautiful woman, but much like She-Hulk yeah, she's a lot more than just you know seven feet of green muscle she's also a lawyer she's also incredibly intelligent so that that whole package and so it's it's walking that fine line but I think we're getting there as people. Um,
1: I, I agree with you. I, I have, uh, um, I see people as unique individuals and they are who they are. Uh, so I can never get that, you know, basically comparing yourself to uh, someone else or trying to, uh, attain to a social standard that, uh, um, you know you're not likely to uh, meet up with given the circumstances uh, uh of your life um but again that's our society uses uh, those type of uh, uh measurements especially if you don't measure up uh to keep people feeling bad <laughs> and and controlled and that's an interesting uh, study in and of itself uh but but i agree with you i i see uh um, every soul is beautiful and every manifestation of every soul is beautiful as well
5: it's for me it's, it's always been um, it's again it's that fine line that you want to walk where I don't believe that uh, because there's there's a mentality of oh you're perfect just the way you are and i I don't like that mentality while I certainly don't want to browbeat people down and, and make them feel inferior that's that's not my Uh, that, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like we can always be a little bit better. And so to me, the, if you come along and say, oh no, you're perfect. Don't worry about it. Uh, that breeds complacency. And so, but at the same time, I'm not competing against anyone else. The only person I'm competing against is the person that I was yesterday. And that's, that's always been my mantra is to just Hey, just be a little better than I was yesterday. Okay. So maybe uh, if someone comes along and they say, okay, well, you know, it took me 10 minutes to run a mile. Okay. But that's still a mile, you know, and if the next day you do it in nine fifty nine, that's progress, you know, so that's good. So it's, yeah. So I, I do believe that uh, that everyone should be proud of who they are and, and, but at the same time, we can also be a little bit better. So it's it's finding that, that middle ground where you don't think that you're perfect all the way over here. But at the other hand, you can't beat yourself up all the time. If you're not, you know, exactly where you want to be yet, that's okay. Sometimes just the struggle to get there, you learn more from the struggle attempting to achieve it than you do achieving the goal itself.
1: Um, I agree, and, but uh, also at the same time, too, to enjoy the journey, that uh, you might not be there yet, you might not be uh, uh, where you see yourself being uh, in your head, uh, you're on the journey, but enjoy the journey. Like you said, don't beat yourself up, um, but I, I, too, believe in self-improvement. I, I too, believe in, uh, um, you know, basically forming an ideal picture and then trying to uh, uh, attain that or create that. But I've learned uh, the hard way, like I learned many things, uh, to enjoy where I am in the here and now as well and just appreciate uh, everything that's going on because uh, ultimately and eventually, uh, when you get where you want to be, what do you call it? It it doesn't provide the satisfaction you thought it would provide, but if you enjoy the journey, uh, you'll experience the satisfaction of getting there, uh, but you'll appreciate getting there as well.
5: Right. No, that's, you hit it right there. Yeah, exactly that. If people can go through and they can adopt that philosophy, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely dead on with with, uh, with your theory.
1: Are, we're coming to the end of our journey today. Are there any projects on the horizon, uh, uh, new and exciting uh, things that we should be looking out for?
5: Uh, not new that, that we haven't already discussed in the past. I, I am currently working on Uh, On my uh, original novel Uh, And unfortunately writing a novel Does take a a considerable amount of time But I've been throwing myself into that Since the first of the year And really enjoying that Uh, So uh, hopefully I'll have more details on that uh, Here in the near future But just nothing to announce at this time
1: Fantastic And when you're ready to start working on the project You proposed to me uh, What do you call it? Uh, I'm ready too So uh, uh, when the time is right We'll do it
5: That sounds fantastic.
1: Thank you so much, Ryan. I always enjoy your being here. You're a great guy, um, and I enjoy speaking with you. I look forward to speaking to you again uh, very soon.
5: Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on and talk with you tonight. It was really fun.
1: Thanks. Uh, We're going to listen to another song. Let's see if I can find one I haven't played. I like playing the same songs uh, over and over again. I haven't heard this one before, Antlered, Crown, and Standing Stone. And welcome back to Voice of Olympus I'm your host, Hercules Invictus And we move onward to the last segment of today's show We have with us Tim Espy from Level 1 Games And he'll be giving us a gaming update Greetings and welcome, Tim How are you? Greetings
6: Greetings. Good, I'm good
1: How are you? you? Uh, I'm great I'm very excited that Now we have a regularly scheduled uh, show It took a while (laughs) <laughs> but we're finally here. Welcome to the crew.
6: <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, this is great. I look. I always look forward to this. Me too.
1: Um, now, last time we spoke about all the variety of uh, gaming experiences that one can now get at uh, Level One Games, and you kind of gave us a guided tour of uh, uh, all the things uh, that are going on. Um, so I thought today we would. Uh, um, get an update on which direction those things are moving in and also look at some of the mythologically based, uh, games that uh, are now out. And uh, I'm thinking of getting a PlayStation four. Uh, so, yep. uh, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether that's a wise choice or whether that's another system that can serve me better in terms of mythic gaming.
6: Um, I think that's that, that's the one you gotta go with because of God of War. You said that you played the other ones previously, I believe, right?
1: Um I, I played the first God of War when it came out, uh, the, the 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 very first one. I was reviewing games at the time, and uh, I mm-hmm. got a review yeah. copy from Sony, and it was the bells and whistles one. I have a little leather case with, like, uh, some other DVDs in it that had the music, and they had kind of like a, uh, a player's uh, guide to it. Um, and uh, um, I haven't really – I have – all of them, except this last one. Uh, and I've uh, put them on and played with them for a little bit, but I haven't really had a chance to uh, get into any of them. But they're awesome. I've been reading the books. I've been reading the, the comic books when they've come out. Um, I think I have a couple of the figures <laughs> somewhere, uh, but I haven't really had a chance to enjoy uh, the games. Uh, last time you said that, uh, well, a couple of times, you said that you're you're finding that a phenomenally uh, enjoyable game, and you said that it was the best one in the in the series, and you, that you had actually played a, a bit of it.
6: Yeah, oh yeah, I finished, yeah, the, uh, I finished uh, the entire uh, thing. Uh, I didn't do like uh, wow. every single little thing, but but yeah, I finished the, the whole game. Um, I, I think it's something that you would enjoy greatly.
1: I think so, too. Um, in Norse mythology, it would be very interesting um to see, are they going to continue in the Northlands, or is uh, Kratos and Atreus, uh, are they going to travel from land to land, so we'll get, like, a bunch of different uh, mythologies playing out in the series?
6: Um, I believe that they're still going to stay there, because there's a lot for them to cover. Uh Uh-huh. There is still some realms and stuff that were yet to be visited.
1: Now, are the Norse gods uh, in the game as well?
6: Oh yeah, yep. oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Can you give out some non-spoilery type of information? <laughs> <laughs>
6: I, I, that's what I was going to say. I'm not going to say who they are because the way they introduce themselves is, is a spectacle—a spectacle in and of themselves. So, okay, it, it's it's so worth the experience to see what, what, when they when they show up and. There's one guy that you think to yourself, oh, is it this person? And then it comes around, and it's somebody different. And, yeah, it's a, it's a whole, big, whole big story and surprise.
1: Okay, so, so don't spoil it uh, for me. No, no uh, and I won't. <laughs> the God of War, they don't have, like, expansions, uh, at least none that I remember. They, they've they expanded the story through different games, um, but they don't really have, like, expansions like Diablo has for instance, or The Elder Scrolls. Uh, So the story remains uh, kind of self-contained. Have they translated all the old games to PlayStation 4 as well? Uh, No, there was Uh, not not a
6: collection that they released. I'm pretty sure they released a collection for PlayStation 3.
1: Yes, they did. That
6: was the, the most updated one. They haven't moved it over to PS4 yet. I don't know if they plan on it. They were working on this one for so long, so... I don't think that they have plans on it because they want to talk about doing another one already. So,
1: And Assassin's Creed, I've heard so many different, the, the Odyssey, I've heard so many different uh, uh, reviews of that and all of them are uh, excellent.
6: Yeah I, yeah, I never played that one. I only played I Assassin's played Creed Assassin's 1 and 2 for a, for a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, But Origins, is is that the Egyptian one? I guess them am all confused. Uh, but no, Odyssey is the uh one. Odyssey the Egyptian is the Greek
1: one.
2: one.
6: Oh, okay. And, so, yeah, Origins uh, is the, the Egyptian one, I believe.
1: Nicholas and uh, Michelle, who came on uh, before you tonight, they both uh, raved about the game. And uh, I spoke with my... Uh, uh, older son uh, a little earlier this week uh, and he also asked me if I played it I said no I haven't had the chance and uh, he said that it's incredibly awesome and uh, uh, he even said that you can go to our island Lemnos on the game because it allows uh-huh. you to wander uh-huh. around and go to different places and do different things so um, that, that's definitely on my list uh, for the PlayStation 4 it's like God of War and then uh, uh, Assassin's Creed uh, Odyssey I heard that they're making a Roman one next
6: uh, that would make sense. I I don't know if they really touched on that too much yet. They, they expanded the lore so much in those games that I haven't really kept up with them. Um, I don't think they've done a Roman thing yet, so that would fit in with their timeline well.
1: Now, I don't know the the basic uh, story uh, to that, um, as well as uh, I know, like, the God of War uh, story. Uh There seems to be like some sort of like time travel or uh, um, kind of like uh, um, immersive, uh, um, like taking on the persona of someone in the past. Uh, There seems to be a storyline that ties them all together. And it isn't just looking at an organization in different periods uh, uh, of history. There seems to be like uh, uh, something more science fiction-y going on. Uh, Do you know more about that story?
6: Yeah, so um how it is is at least in the first couple from from my memory of it which was, you know, over 10 or 15 years ago whenever it came out was that there's the uh, the animus is what it's called. It's like uh, mm-hmm. like uh, like it it goes into your brain and DNA and the people that you play as in the past are your past um like they're your bloodline. So, okay. the, you know, SEO and and uh, everybody is, those are like the people from the past. Those are your bloodline from the people that are in the animus now, which is like the science fiction, like big mega corporation people. Um, and I forget what their, their backstory is of, as to why they're trying to you know, tap into the past, maybe to make money or something. I, I forget. Um, but, but there is some science fiction-y stuff going on that, that ties it all together, kind of.
1: Uh-huh. And there was a movie, or maybe a series of movies. Uh, there's so many things going on and so many interesting things to focus on that it, it, it's really hard to, uh, you know, to to keep track of things.
6: Yeah, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago. I didn't see it, though. I
1: have to look, uh, look it up and... Uh, uh, I guess when I get Odyssey, I'll try and catch up on uh, uh, what the story is and try to experience it. Uh, the only other PlayStation 4 game, I, I well, there's Titan Quest. Um, that mm. had come out for the PC. I think we talked about it once uh, before. Have you uh, played Titan Quest?
6: I have not. I played Titan Fall, but that's different.
1: Yeah, it's different. Uh, I actually have the Titan Quest here. I haven't had a chance to put it away yet. Uh, I found my PC version and uh, the PlayStation 4 version, so I got that on a uh, on my stack. That one I actually have. And uh, Titan Quest was like Diablo, but with uh, ancient uh, g- Greece rather than uh, um, you know the type of uh, heaven and hell uh, uh, world that uh, Diablo had. And uh, um, you played uh, a Greek uh, hero, and there were several different paths uh, you could take, uh, and the paths were very complicated. They weren't simple like other Diablo uh, clones, so you had to really give a lot of thought to what you wanted to be and read up on it uh, so that you made the choices. Otherwise, you'd find yourself unable to handle uh, the situations that you were being confronted with later in the game or um, you know, during the expansion if you use the same uh, character. And uh, I heard there was uh, one uh, in England on Theseus and the Minotaur, uh, and uh, I saw a few uh, YouTube videos. And that looked good, but you need the VR glasses. So um, oh, I'm probably okay. going to hold off okay. on getting that until uh, uh, I actually have a PlayStation 4. <laughs> well, you never know. I might get it tomorrow. uh, uh. So I'm I'm looking forward to all this ancient uh, Greek uh, fun. Do you know of any other Greek or Roman games that are coming out or any mythological games at all that are coming out for the PlayStation 4?
6: For so the PS4? PS4. Um, I don't – I can't think of one offhand. Okay. Um, I, I know that it's, it's different, but I think it's something that you would – enjoy anyway. I'm pretty sure I brought it up one time. But it's called Horizon Zero Dawn.
1: Yes, you For the, told It's me about a that.
6: PlayStation 4 exclusive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I might have shown it to you when he came by one time. Um, I, I think after you play God of War and, and stuff, give that a shot and, and see what you think. It's it's more it's more futuristic, but the the characters that you play as are more. Um, ancient in technology kind of but with science okay. stuff built in it, it's a pretty interesting concept in the way they split stuff around like there, there's big mechanical dinosaurs but you're shooting them with bow and arrows that you know have <laughs> certain upgrades electricity and, and stuff you know and it's more about like setting up trip wires to bring them down and and it's it's, it's fun it came out the same time as Zelda the new Zelda came out. So it right. kind of got overshadowed a little bit, and I was I felt culprit to that as well. Um, so I never actually finished the game, but uh, but it, uh, it's it's incredible the you know hours that I put into it. It's something a little bit different, but still the same gameplay style, kind of big open world, you know, expansive that I, that I think you would enjoy.
1: Yeah, I definitely have to to try that uh, when I get the PlayStation 4. And they're doing a Conan, too, for the PlayStation 4 uh, as well. Conan is uh, king. Um, I saw a YouTube video on that uh, recently, so uh, that's another reason why I want to get the PlayStation 4. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. a very big Conan fan. It's called Conan, fan. Conan is king? No, not Conan is king. Conan uh the Unconquered or something like that, Conan the Indomitable. It was, I forget exactly what it was okay. called, but uh, okay. let's see if I could, uh, while we're talking, YouTube and see if I could find it.
6: Alright. I know there's a game called Conan Exile, but that's slightly different. That's more like yes, survival I, first person.
1: Yes, I, I, I managed to... Uh, um get a copy of that uh I forget where it was and it was uh, on sale so I picked it up so I have that haven't played it but that's not my kind of mm-hmm. game I just got it because I'm a,
3: right.
1: a I love Conan mm-hmm. Conan Conan Unconquered Okay Okay Yes Conan Unconquered and they have some uh, cinematic uh, t- uh trailers and uh uh then i thought there was another conan game too but it turned out to be uh um a uh japanese version of uh um co- the conan exile so it wasn't uh, a new game
6: hmm. i haven't heard about haven't that heard that about conan that. game
1: the cinematic looked uh, amazing. It had Conan as a king, and uh, he was uh, in a castle in Aquilonia, and there was uh, like an invasion, and then they had like, you know, like a, uh, a giant uh, god of some sort, you know, appear behind It was like a barbaric god, I guess, Krom. Uh, so it was a very short uh, teaser trailer, but it looked very different than Conan Exiles.
6: Is it like third-person like third style? Or? style.
1: They they didn't show the actual gaming, they just showed like the intro, the cinematic okay. intro. So it's all Okay. So, okay. Yeah, I've no idea what it's gonna be like. And and again, even if I never play it, I'm a I'm a Conan fan, so I <laughs> yeah. probably wanna have one <laughs> in my collection. <laughs> I have the old Commodore sixty four Conan still and uh
6: right. I'm um, assuming you've seen all the movies then, right?
1: Yeah, I've seen all the movies. I've seen the TV show. Uh, I've seen the cartoons. Unfortunately, one set of the cartoons never came out. Uh, so uh, I haven't seen it since it aired like years and years and years ago. Uh, but Conan mm-hmm. came back in comic book recently, too. So uh, I've been following that uh, as well. So um, Maybe
6: we'll have a Conan the movie discussion at some point.
1: That'd be awesome. You like Conan as well? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have uh, a couple of the VHSs. <laughs> <laughs> I saw some of the VHSs uh, as well. Uh, Sword and Sorcery came out in uh, um, book form when I was a kid. Uh, I was, I guess, you know, like ten or eleven years old when uh, um, the the whole Sword and Sorcery craze uh, started. And I immediately, I was attracted to it, the covers, then I liked the stories, and I discovered uh, uh, Conan, and uh, I've been a Sword and Sorcery fan ever since. That's like, uh, aside from the mythology and uh, um, some of the professional things I've done that have been there from the beginning, uh, Sword and Sorcery has been like my, uh, my, my private interest <laughs> for the past uh, 50 years, so uh, um, it's still with me. <laughs> Now, are there any sword and sorcery games coming out for the PlayStation Four or or any place like with barbarians and and things like that?
6: There's nothing that I've seen announced, at least. Uh, there was, um, I think it just shares the name Sword and Sorcery, but it was released for PC and that was, you know, six years ago. It was more like a
3: yeah.
6: like eight eight bit style graphics, you know, but made now. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful game with beautiful music, um, but I think it was just more the, the name they used, Sword and Sorcery. No, no ties really.
1: I was in the neighborhood of your friend's uh, store, um, out in my way in Bergen County, Anthony. Yeah, Anthony. Yeah, Anthony. Yes, and uh, uh, he had on his shelf a uh, um, Commodore 64. Emulator with like a bunch of games in it, and uh, uh-huh. um, I, I had to laugh. It's like, uh, I think it was so awesome that uh, the Commodore 64 came back. And uh, I don't know all the games that on there, they only had like a, a bunch of them on the cover, but not as many as I think that it was 70 something. But they had the Temple of Opshai trilogy, which brought back a lot of uh, nostalgia.
6: Did you play through all those, through back, those? back in the day? Or?
1: Oh, back in the day, yeah. But back in the day, there was one of them that was very arcade-ish, and uh, that one I could see. But the other, the other games in the the series had uh, you had to look in the booklet. They they, they didn't. You couldn't really tell what you're experiencing uh, when you were in certain rooms. You had to go look in the book to tell you what you were looking at. Um, so I don't know how they incorporated that into the uh, the new uh, uh, plug-in with your TV version.
6: Right, maybe it was like an electronic, you know, like go online, the website or something.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe. But uh, I'm trying to remember what other games, there was a Conan game, but I doubt that that would be part of the collection. Uh, and there were uh, a couple, I think uh, Gauntlet was available, and uh, uh, there were there were a few other sword and sorcery type games. So I'm going to look online on Amazon uh, to see what's on there. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, wonder when I'm going to have the time to actually play at the Temple of Opsai trilogy. again, but I have so many good memories of playing it that I want to play it again.
6: Yeah, yeah Gauntlet's usually a safe bet to put on, stuff like that. It's usually a solid game, solid franchise. Yeah,
5: I'm,
1: I'm, I'm a big Gauntlet fan. Uh, my PlayStation 2, though, died. Uh, so my PlayStation uh, 1 and 2 uh, Gauntlet uh, in the different collections, I can't play them anymore. Uh, so um, I'm looking for a new, well, not a new, but a serviceable and running PlayStation 2, um, or I'll wait till they come out with an emulator. They're coming out with emulators for everything else, so I imagine at one point yeah. there will be a PlayStation yeah. 2 emulator. They came out with a PlayStation 1 thing, but you can't play games in it. It's just loaded with certain games. and uh,
6: yeah, it's yeah, it's loaded with a loaded couple with games, like, games uh, and, uh, they, and uh, they really dropped the ball that on that one, ball. in my opinion with the games, and I, I would pass
1: on it. Yeah, I, I, I was excited, because it looked like uh, the old version of the uh, PlayStation 1, uh, but then uh, yeah. I talked yeah. to, I think it was in Target I saw it, and I talked to the person uh, there, uh, one of the um, people in the department, and he said, no, you can't load it, You just it's just the games that are there, so I took a look at the games that are there, they're games I didn't play when the system was out, I had no desire to play them, so... Uh, kind of passed on that, and I'm looking at the clock. Our time is almost uh, gone. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to wo- what's new and exciting at level one. So what is new and exciting at level one since last time we talked?
6: Um, we did our first. Um, so are, you're familiar with Dragon Ball, the anime, yeah. and you know cultural. Um, there's the Dragon Ball Super is a new card game that they came out with uh, a year and a half ago. Uh huh. Um, And uh, that's been doing really well for us. And so we did our first pre-release event um, so people could get their hands on the product early and be in a tournament and win, you know, special prizes and stuff that you can only get for, you know, that tournament. Um, So that one we did last week, and it was a huge success. We, you know, sold through all the products, and the product is hard to get now, you know, so it's it's a really good – a really good set and, and product it seems Um so that that was exciting. We did that. Um I was just playing some board games now with a few friends. Um, uh
4: uh-huh. uh still
6: still still chugging along, doing what we do, playing magic and Pokemon and Dragon Ball and playing some video games and board games. Still having a good time.
1: That that is awesome and I, I really think uh the level one games is an awesome uh place and uh um, it, it brings joy to my heart whenever I come there, uh, I get to see you and also um, just seeing the changes. It's like going into a different store <laughs> every time I'm there. Yep. And I'm glad that not only video games uh, uh, have found uh, new life, but uh, board games and card games and role-playing games. And and uh, I, I love games. And uh, so it, it, it's really exciting to be able to uh, see all of these different uh uh, ways of playing games, you know, all in one place, and that uh, there's activity going on. They're not just sitting on shelves. You have people at the tables, and, yeah, uh, it, the it, tables it, always have it, people there doing different now things. It's bigger now than ever. It, it is awesome. Um, and now, something else I'll that that, that is
6: tied in with you as well. We uh, we started a D and D campaign, you know. Last year or so, and uh th- that's grown so much now we run two d and d events on Sundays. So I forgot to tell you that um oh awesome but it it's it's gotten even more popular now, you know so now we have you know twenty or so people that come and play d and d on sunday, two different events or two different you know scenarios being run yeah it's been uh it's been d and d has been exploding.
1: Yes, uh, I even read an article on how uh, D&D be- has become cool again and I think with the internet uh, and uh, YouTube there's all these uh, instructional uh, videos and uh, uh, it's easy, It's the game is not as esoteric as it was and then you have uh, ties with Rick and Morty and Stranger Things uh, that have exposed yep, it to an really even great wider great. more mainstream audience so that that is awesome Um one of these days I have to budget time so that I can come and like observe a, a game. I think uh, I'd enjoy that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I will share this with you before uh we finish for today. Um in the next few months I'll be having a video show as well. So okay. I'd like to okay. film a segment over at level one Games. So again, these things sometimes uh, take a little bit of time, but it's definitely happening. So uh, next time I come there, we'll have a conversation or we'll have a conversation on the phone, but I'd love to do a segment there.
6: Yeah, that would be that amazing. Would be amazing.
1: Um, I have a link to level one games, uh, both on Facebook and to your website. And I have a link to you. Um, do you want to share any other way that folks can, uh, uh, contact you or check out Level 1 Games?
6: Yep, that's the best way. Facebook uh, goes right to my phone, so if you message us, then then I'll get it. Um, our website, level1games.com. But uh, Facebook is the most direct, quick way, other than the phone obviously, but um, send us a message if you have any questions, and I'll be more than happy to, to help in any way that I can.
1: Thanks, Tim. Uh, I look forward to uh, the next edition. We have to come up with a title um, for this segment. I'm calling it Mythic Games for now. And uh, um, I will see you before then uh, out by Level 1 Games. So thanks again. Uh, Have a great day. You're awesome.
6: Looking forward to it. Thanks so much.
1: And thanks to all who've joined us tonight. Until next time, this is Hercules and Tim wishing you joyous journeys and fantastic adventures.
4: Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember all manifestations of the Divine are equally valid.